Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Welcome to this podcast on uncertainty in the networking quadrant. The networking quadrant is concerned with diagnosis just as the analysing quadrant was. However, in the networking quadrant, a wider diagnostic network is involved, not just one clinician and one patient working together. In this introduction to the networking quadrant, I'm going to be thinking about why problems arise and also discussing some of the dysfunctional ways out. The next podcast, we'll talk about the functional ways through. Here is a scenario from a real clinical example. A busy clinician in accident and emergency hears this comment from a patient. My doctor is marvellous. If they're in any doubt at all, they send you straight up to the hospital to get it sorted out. Needless to say, this particular clinician, who was thought marvellous by the patient, sent patients to the emergency department every single day, sometimes several patients per day. The patients who came were not usually that unwell, didn't need admission and rarely needed much investigation. Referral was a way of resolving the clinician's doubt, their unwillingness to dig deeper, to hold any uncertainty or to get the patient involved in the process of thinking. Doubtless the secondary care services heaved a sigh of relief when that person retired. These days, when everyone's referrals are under scrutiny, perhaps this would happen less. And certainly primary care organisations and other regulators are looking more deeply at outliers whose referral frequencies seem to be out of the ordinary. And these are attempts to try and standardise care. However, everyone's use of tests, investigations, imaging and referral is increasing all the time. So is there really a problem in the networking quadrant? And I'm going to talk to the background of this now and also think about some of the dysfunctional ways out that cause problems. The networking quadrant is concerned with how clinicians try to make diagnoses, just as the analysing quadrant is. Although the analysing quadrant is concerned with what happens when one clinician and patient are working together, the networking quadrant is concerned with what happens when the wider diagnostic network becomes involved. Most of the time, a good history and appropriate physical examination will yield a working diagnosis or set of differentials which will mean that the clinician and patient can move forward. Resolving a clear differential such as is this rectal bleeding caused by cancer that results in referral for endoscopy is not a what you do and you don't know what to do issue. This situation is like roulette. It's risky for the patient, but it's not uncertain because not all patients with rectal bleeding do turn out to have a cancer. Most do not. Until we investigate though, we don't know which ones will turn out to have piles or an anal fissure. But problems do arise in the networking quadrant when referral for tests or investigations is not really necessary or where the referral goes to the wrong place or provides results that do not help the patient and clinician or result in a cascade of inappropriate or even dangerous investigations. 
The array of diagnostic services that we have access to is unprecedented and expanding all the time. Laboratory tests, ultrasound, radiology of all kinds, specialised diagnostic clinics and pathways, endoscopy and so on. This can create a rather paralysing sense of not knowing what to do. Which service or test is most appropriate? How many tests could, should or even need to be done before referral? What degree of uncertainty can we accept before referral is triggered? How much risk is acceptable and who accepts that risk, the patient or the clinician? The use of time as a diagnostic strategy is often discussed in the context of primary care, but this can be difficult for inexperienced clinicians to work with confidently. If problems don't seem to be resolvable within their own sphere of expertise, referral to a different specialist if you're working in hospital, or referral back to the GP, or admission to the hospital if the patient is acutely unwell in the community, seems a comforting strategy. After all, if the clinician themselves doesn't know what the problem is, how could it be harmful for them to do investigations or refer to someone else who will know the answer? Conversely, when specialist services find themselves stumped, they often say things like, just ask your GP about that, or more controversially, tell your GP to refer you to such and such a service. Difficulties will soon begin if the receiving GP does not have access to such a service, or believes that that service is not the correct one for this particular patient. All those receiving referrals, and that's including GPs, who get a lot of referrals back from secondary care, are aware of those referrals that go wrong, or don't have the hoped-for clarifying effect, with no usable diagnosis yielding from the tests and opinions. The networking quadrant addresses these issues in more detail. Patients are at greatest risk of times of handover, perhaps between colleagues in the same location, certainly when being referred between institutions or between services, patients can easily fall between the cracks. Developing efficient and effective relationships and interactions in the networking quadrant is a major professional responsibility. It means having systems in place to maintain continuity and a sense of ownership for the patient's well-being as they travel through the system, as well as the skills to refer appropriately and manage scarce resources wisely. Clearly, too little or inappropriate referral risks compromising high standards of care. However, excess referral and excess investigation has problems too. It wastes resources. Excessive referral can create expectations which may not be fulfilled and cause problems for patients. And of course, over-investigation can also over-medicalise many problems, and these can cause real harms. There are clearly ethical issues here too, balancing the use of resources for different patients, the potential to do harm, and the uncertainty about which course of action will enable the patient's autonomy to flourish the most. These are live questions in clinical practice. Managing uncertainty requires the skills to think about ethical issues quickly and to bring them into consideration when thinking about referral or investigation. I think there are two aspects to the skills needed for the networking quadrant. First, the clinician needs to understand 
and manage their own thoughts and feelings when they're having a what do you do when you don't know what to do moment when it's connected with making a diagnosis. This is a further example of metacognition. Commonly, clinicians feel uncomfortable if they can't make a diagnosis or if they have a niggling doubt that the diagnosis that seems correct is not the right one. They may start thinking to themselves, what if the true diagnosis is something rare or that I'm missing something or I need some special tests to rule out a diagnosis. Secondly, the clinician needs the skills to discuss these issues with the patient in such a way that the patient is involved in the decision making. It may not be easy to find the sweet spot between referring too little, which does risk missing important diagnosis or therapeutic options, and referring too much, which does cause real iatrogenic harm and waste resources, which means that patients who are not being referred are also compromised because there's less resources available to them. Although clinicians aim to be systematic and rational about their work, nonetheless, quite a lot of decisions are made using intuitive type 1 thinking in which the reasoning behind a decision is not articulated and may be strongly influenced by non-rational factors, including the emotions of the clinician or patient. This can often happen when there is uncertainty, as clinicians make rapid intuitive decisions so that uncertainty is replaced with a firm decision, even if it's not a good decision. Such responses to uncertainty probably underlie some excess referrals to the wider diagnostic network. So what are the dysfunctional ways out of uncertainty in the networking quadrant? What are the common pitfalls that arise and how can we avoid them? Referral for investigation usually occurs in situations of diagnostic doubt. So the most important thing that the doctor and patient hope for is a clear-cut diagnosis. Sometimes a clear-cut ruling out of a condition is aspired to, but that doesn't tend to call the what you do and you don't know what to do question. The resolution of straightforward differentials is not the subject of the networking quadrant. So what pitfalls are there in this apparently innocuous process of doing some tests or referring for a further opinion? Well, one very important factor is when there's a mismatch between the clinician's understanding of the purposes of the test and the patient's understanding. Now, tests and investigations can be performed simply to rule out certain conditions. For the clinician, ruling out something serious may be sufficient for them to feel happy and reduce their anxiety. However, the patient will have other questions. They want to know what is wrong and why. They want to know what tests will rule in a specific diagnosis so that they can understand their condition and hopefully find a cure or treatment for it. If the doctor and patient are at cross purposes about why tests are being done, then their response to normal tests may also be at odds. If all the tests come back normal, which might be quite reassuring and satisfying to the clinician, suggesting that the risk of serious disease is low, the patient may actually become even more worried and anxious. Why can't the clinician find the answer? If this has not been discussed clearly beforehand, and if the response to normal investigations has not been planned for, this can trigger further rounds of fruitless and sometimes risky testing. For example, if investigations for chest pain are pursued in spite of normal initial investigations, 
the patient may even end up undergoing angiography, which has a morbidity and even a mortality attached. Another issue is when there's over-reliance on tests and investigations to create a diagnosis without there being clear clinical reasoning behind it. Of course, diagnosis is not a fixed concept. Diagnoses evolve over time during the assessment of the patient. Investigations can only rule in or rule out diagnoses to the extent that a rational differential has been arrived at in the analysing quadrant in the first place. If investigations are done in a random way, or a scattergun way, or just as sets of so-called routine investigations, this is no substitute for a properly thought through differential. So one of the dysfunctional ways out of the analysing quadrant is prematurely moving to the networking quadrant and investigating in an unstructured way. If this is followed by over-reliance on the test results, problems can arise. If in a breathless patient, tests for asthma and wheeze are normal, the clinician may falsely reassure the patient if the shortness of breath is really caused by anemia, for example. Normal tests do not necessarily mean that there is, in quotes, nothing wrong with the patient, close inverted commas. A further issue is the underappreciation by many clinicians of the frequency of functional conditions. About 30% in some studies and possibly up to 60% in other studies of patients in primary care have functional disorders which frequently occur in every specialty. For example, irritable bowel syndrome, atypical facial pain, trochanteric pain syndrome. These are all disorders of function rather than structure. When all the so-called basic tests are done, referral to a specialist or to get more tests or an x-ray to be sure can set up a cycle of non-contributory investigations that leave both clinician and patient rather frustrated. If clinicians do not have the skills to explain and manage these types of functional syndromes, this becomes a common reason for unnecessary referral. This kind of referral can be a very dysfunctional way out, of course, because many specialty doctors also lack the skills to understand, manage and explain functional conditions. Every clinician should have positive approaches to functional disorders and develop good skills to explain them and manage them. This is covered in some detail in the TALC Core Skills Modules 4 and 5. Other dysfunctional ways out can arise because of increasing anxiety in the clinician and the patient. And this is sometimes also increasing frustration in the clinician. If we are honest with ourselves, sometimes the purpose of investigating or referring a patient can really be to get this person out of my consulting room because the way forwards is unclear and the patient's anxiety and sometimes the clinician's is escalating to the point where the anxiety itself is becoming intolerable for both parties. The complexities of the doctor-patient, clinician-patient consultation have been well described by Inez et al as stable complex systems with creative or novel events happening on the edge of chaos. This can mean that outcomes, including referrals, may happen somewhat unexpectedly as many factors come into play. However, we do not usually write, I must get this patient out of my hair for a bit on the referral form. 
This often means that referrals do not achieve their aim from the patient's viewpoint. The patient is more likely to be asking, what is the matter with me? Who's going to help me? Rather than, how do I get the doctor out of my hair for a bit? Furthermore, doing tests and investigations to end the consultation is wasteful. There are practical, ethical and financial reasons why referring for tests needs skillful handling. Being able to analyse the possible ethical constraints quickly in a consultation is a key skill for generalists. Sometimes reflex or poorly thought through diagnostic referral has a more sinister effect. The investigations may reveal unexpected abnormalities that result in a cascade of investigations, further removing the patient from the effective analysis that should precede this. If cues from the patient have been missed, for example a travel history or important psychosocial issues, then merely doing more tests is a dysfunctional way out. It can lead to over-medicalising of the patient's experiences and weaken the doctor or clinician's analysing skills through atrophy and disuse. Another issue that gives rise to dysfunctional ways out is when there are emotional difficulties in the consultation that is to say, in the clinician-patient relationship. Sometimes referral is a way of trying to resolve a relationship difficulty in the consultation. The communication style of the clinician affects relationships. Patients are known to prefer an affiliative caring style to a more dominant style. If there is a dominant style of communicating, which is sometimes called clinician-centred or doctor-centred, and patients are not satisfied with that, referral onwards is a rapid way to resolve the situation. For example, if all the gastroenterological investigations are normal and the gastroenterology clinician is making a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, they may find the patient's distress difficult to cope with and not know how to deal with it. So they say something like, oh, well, I'm sure the GP could refer to this other hospital for some new therapy and then they add acupuncture, hypnotherapy, or whatever it might be. This gets the patient off the specialist list, but those treatments might not be available. Many patients with painful conditions are discharged from secondary care when investigations are complete, and the letter to the GP says something like, I have told the patient she should be referred to a pain clinic, which is another way of saying, I have not been able to manage her pain. However, Pain clinics are very overstretched, with long waiting lists, but the message to the patient gives her the impression that the pain clinic will cure her of the pain. However, the complex biopsychosocial approach of the pain clinic is orientated towards coping with and managing pain rather than curing it. And if patients are not ready for this approach, another cycle of failed referral and frustration will result. Clinicians benefit from understanding the patient's concerns more fully prior to any onward referral. And this is explored completely in TALC Core Module 3. Opportunities to discuss the relationships with patients in valent groups or similar groups can also help to prevent emotional disturbances in the consultation. All these difficulties can be compounded by the increasing fragmentation of health services. Referral networks are constantly changing when contracts are moved between different providers and they have different criteria for referral also. 
this can be a particular problem for primary care. Navigating complex services has always been part of a GP's role and requires particular attention when resources are limited. Being able to maintain a good database of appropriate diagnostic facilities to refer to and being aware of what they can and can't deliver is a crucial skill. In the next podcasts, we'll be exploring functional ways through uncertainty in the networking quadrant. And the key skills that we're going to be discussing include these. Holding skills, managing expectations of referrals or investigations before they take place, understanding referral networks, breaking good news, dealing with exceptional circumstances and continuing care after referral has taken place. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.